It's going to fall into three sections, what we're going to do. The first two will come before the meal and the last one after the meal. And the three sections are not just arbitrary, really, because there are three ways in which we access truth. We tend to access truth now largely by the lecture and so on, and when people say professor, they expect me to give a lecture. The two seem to go hand in hand. But that's a very recent way of passing on information. Um, it's a linear form. I have to make sure that what I say is related to the way that you think and, and your situation. If it's not, then you probably won't understand a great deal of it. If it's too simple, you'll get bored. So it's a relatively limited medium, and it moves from this piece of information to that. And it has become the main way that we have of teaching. Of course, it was, it's partly similar to the sermon, which is another way of teaching. Much, much older than the linear methods of passing information on is the story, which was a much older and richer form, I would say, of passing on truth. The joy of the story is that most people can understand it at whatever level. So I turned up at one point to do actually Julian of Norwich, which I think I'm doing for you in about a fortnight's time, um, for a service. And there suddenly in front of me were six rather small children, um, which I hadn't really banked on. And I thought, oh dear, and now what do I do? If it had been in a sermon, that might have been fairly difficult. I thought, nothing ventured, nothing gained, I will tell the story. And of course, the children, one of whom was as young as five, got something out of it. In fact, the seven-year-old turned to his dad afterwards and said, Cor, that was lovely, wasn't it, Dad? <laughs> I hadn't changed what I was going to do for what I thought was an audience of adults. <clears throat> but somehow the story speaks wherever. And it's a multi-layered form that you can perceive at whatever level. It's also, and that's why, of course, Jesus used it and, and often accompanied it with that wonderful phrase, let the one who has, has ears to hear, let them hear. In a sense, that means we shall all perceive it in a way that is uh, commensurate with where we are. So we shall hear it in different ways. It's actually quite difficult to hear a lecture in different ways, but it's much easier to hear a story at different levels, and those of us who know our childhood stories will know that they have in fact been reworked in our own lives, and you go back to them and rework them and see different levels of meaning. It's also, unlike the sermon and the lecture, a much more circular form. Our current forms of storytelling are of course the soap operas, and all of you will know that you can miss a three months of Neighbours and turn it on, and it's perfectly quite within a matter of minutes, you've got back into where it is. Because, of course, it's revisiting various themes in a rather circular fashion. So it doesn't go along as a linear narrative. And in a sense, that tension or that <coughs> interplay between the linear narrative and the circularity of life is something that we're working out all the time. Um, and Western society, and I'll come back to this, is tended to see life more of a, as a linear structure than as a circular structure. But if we look, for example, at the Bible, the old 
you know, the Hebrew scriptures. There is, of course, the grand narrative, the linear narrative of the Exodus and so on. But there are, of course, also, and I'll return to this later on, the wisdom texts, which are much more circular and much more related to the interplay of everyday life. So the story is what I shall start with. I shall put on this uh, scarf and I shall say I am Hildegard, and that will be her story. The second, the last part where we shall go into the church is a meditation, not the silent meditation of the kind that we've done here. I did that for two reasons, really. One, first of all, when I started to talk about Hildegard, I thought, how do I take a group of people from the 20th, 20th 21st century into that conventual situation with its continual round of prayer? In your, your, the offices of the monastic orders, it's really every three hours you're praying and singing. That's what it is. It's a continual round right the way through the night. So how does one manage to take, have something of that in the 21st century? So as Kim has said, you have to sing and that the songs come round, just in the same way as the songs the, the psalms and so on, come round and round in the monastic offices. But also, Hildegard was a Benedictine, and central to the Benedictine order is Lectio Divina, sometimes rather dubiously translated, I think, as divine reading. And so people say, I'm going to do some Lectio Divina, which means they're going to read, you know, Meister Eckhart as opposed to um, Agatha Christie. Um, <clears throat> but Lectio Divina is something very different from that. Many of my students at this precise moment will be trying to get from one end of the text to another in the fastest possible time. And they will convince me that they've read 20 books when their essays come in, and I will know that they've read perhaps a quarter of 20 books, and their eyes will have skimmed over the vast majority of it. And I should expect them to do that. I should expect them to have lots of references, and what else can they do? So speed reading is the order of the day, getting from one end of a text to another. Lectio Divina is the exact reverse of that. It's slow, very, very, very slow reading. Because it's based on the principle that the word of God can dwell in us richly. So it's based on a text that is not something from which you take information, but something which potentially dwells inside you. So you and the text become one by means of Lectio Divina. Used, of course, for religious texts, um, whether it's the Quran or the Bible or the Bhagavad Gita the, or the, Rigveda, the Vedas, really. Um, but, of course, used by Mao in the Little Red Book, and so used for political texts as well. That was the aim of the Little Red Book, and so on. Now, if that's going to happen, uh, then the process of meditation and the process of reading become a single process. It took me five years to read Julian of Norwich. Um, read until a particular phrase leaps out at you, and then you use that particular phrase for your own meditation, and then when the phrase starts to lose its power, you go back to the text and read on. And so certain of the phrases become part of your being. And of course, the whole basis of the Bible Reading Fellowship and all of the schemes of reading the Bible 
are designed for the Bible to live within us and us and the Bible text to become one and so on. So in the meditation, I've tried to set up a situation where you will become one with some of the Hildegard texts and so on. So it'll be a different way of looking at them. So three, uh, three ways of accessing truth, the story, the lecture, the talk, and the meditation. Right, so, um, as, have we got these sheets? Did, um, yes, those can, those can go out. Um, as part of the story, um, I will sing, but first of all, we should have sung straight away because you've got a song on your sheet and I forgot. So we're going to sing the first song on the sheet, which goes to the tune, Ya-da-da-da-dum-da-da-dum-dum. Is that familiar to everybody? Good. Hildegard of faith unbending, feather on the breath of God. World of substance all transcending, treading paths as yet untrod. Through discernment travelled forward, penetrating wisdom's knot. Lonely woman, silence keeping till the time to speak came near. Then the words of God unceasing from your lips the world could hear. Justice for a whole creation underpinned your message clear. May discernment bring us wisdom, in compassion may we love, deep in joy may we find laughter, may our trust be just enough so that dancing we may enter, shining courts in heaven above. Hildegard, for, for Hildegard, music was central. It was central because music is the stuff of creation, and by making music we become one with the, one another, one with God and one with the natural world. And that, of course, is still believed by music therapists. The fundamental basis of music therapy is that by making music together, the client and the, and the therapist become unified and so on. So singing was very important to her. It's worth bearing that in mind when, you got, when I get to one particular section of the story. As part of the story, I shall sing um, one of her hymns, the Viridism of Virga, in Latin, which is the original text. And the translation of that is at the bottom of the page, oh, praise a branch of great greenness. Just one second, if I stand up, will you, will you lose that yes, on? No, no, I will follow you. Okay, right, good. Thank mm -hmm. you. 
I am Hildegard. I know the cost of keeping silent. And I know the cost of speaking out. Hear my story. Perhaps you know me as Hildegard of Bingham. But it was several miles from Bingen where I was born, in the Nahr Valley in Germany in the year of our Lord, 1098. Do you know the Rhineland? Do any of you know it? Have any of you been there? Have you? Nobody been there? You should. It is the most beautiful place. Rich and green, moist and fruitful. The rolling hills stretch as far as the eye can see, crowned here and there with tall forests and in them watchtowers and rocky crags that seem to reach to the sky. On the southern slopes, the carefully tended vineyards ripple like waves lapping the skirts of the hills. And in the valleys, the neat fields and tidy villages provide ample sustenance for humankind and their beasts. And through it all flows the mighty River Rhine, bringing growth and fruitfulness to the air, moisture and a means of movement and transport to all who live there. They call it now the Fatherland, <laughs> I believe. But for me, it will always be mother. For the earth is our mother. She is the mother of all because she contains with all the seeds of all. The earth of humankind contains all verdancy, all moisture, all germinating power. All creation comes from it. And yet it contains not only the raw material of humankind, but the substance of the incarnation of God's own Son. Being the tenth child, I was tithed to God. <laughs> and sent at the age of eight, to live at the Abbey of St. Disibode with an anchoress called Jutta. From Jutta I learned so much of everyday things, of spinning and of weaving, and also of the ever-present, all-encircling love of God, how we are enclosed by him, and of the Holy Spirit, which flows like sap through our bones, bringing growth and fruitfulness. From my earliest childhood, God revealed himself to me in many ways, and sometimes in words, sometimes in <coughs> images, and sometimes in music.
sometimes in all three. But always he shows himself in the splendour of the natural world. But I grew to see the evil in the world, the corruption of state and church, the violation of the natural world and the loss of its goodness. And I learned anger as well as joy. I looked and I listened. I saw and I heard. But I kept silent. Yet ever within me grew the pressure to speak out. But how could I, a woman, make my voice heard? Who would listen to me? Who would believe my words, not learned by rote from any human tutor? How could my words be in any way useful? I consulted my spiritual directors, people I was accustomed to respect, indeed, to obey. They told me it was not my place to speak out. <laughs> my role was to tend my community ever faithfully, but silently. How could I then have recognised within me the burning torment spoken of by the prophets when the word of God burns in the heart and aches in the bones? For it was not out of stubbornness that I refused to speak, but out of a supposed humility. And I found myself pressed down by God into a bed of sickness. But lo, in the 41st year of my life's course, I found myself taken up in a vision, and in it I beheld a great radiance, and in the radiance was formed a voice, and the voice spoke to me. Dust of dust, corruption of corruption, tell and write what you see, and what you hear. And behold, I stood up and I set my hand to writing and I long longer felt beaten down. The words poured out of me in a torrent, a great outflowing of God's word, his spirit, his daybar. I started to write my first book. I called it Skevias, <laughs> knowing the ways. It was to take me 10 years to complete. And contrary to my previous fears and timidity, I was heard. A people came to me from far and near, and I entered into a vast correspondence with the leaders of my day, among them Bernard of Clairvaux and the Emperor Barbarossa. The Holy Father heard of me. And when he, sent a, when he came to Trier, he sent a commission to investigate me. They found me competent and authentic. And he wrote to me, encouraging my writing. By this time, Jutta had died. 
And I had been elected abbess, you would say, of our small community of women. But we were growing all the time and we were still crammed in to Yuta's tiny house. The monks of St. Disibode had expanded too, taking up all the available land for their farms and their buildings. Abbot Kuno was implacable and refused to yield up an extra inch of space. Can you imagine the arguments, the committee meetings and the counter-arguments and the endless frustration of not being heard? Eventually, we just packed up our bags and left, not waiting for the men's permission and taking our dowries with us. I began to build on the banks of the Rhine, on a hill at Bingen, which I dedicated to my dear St. Rupert. I myself supervised the building, making sure that all was spacious and comfortable. We even had piped water. Perhaps I remembered those journeys to the well and the breaking of the ice on the washing trough. But more, I think, I do not think that our Creator God delights in our bodily discomfort, especially when it is self-inflicted. It has been said that the body is at war with the soul, but how can this be? He made us as whole beings, and our souls can only find expression through the actions of our body. Indeed, I am persuaded that when body and soul act together in mutual agreement, they receive the highest reward of mutual joy. There on the Rupertsburg, my sisters and I experimented with new ways of worshipping God, sometimes wearing colourful robes and golden crowns, not always with ecclesiastical permission. <laughs> my vast correspondence continued, and I wrote many books and many songs on theology and the lives of the saints, and a morality play with music for my nuns to perform. And I, a woman in my sixties, travelled the length and the breadth of Germany and preached from the pulpits of the great cathedrals and abbeys. And ever I spoke of God's justice and ever I exhorted leaders of church and state to excise corruption and work for the peace and integrity of all creation. And in it, and through it, and round it, is always the music. For music expresses most clearly the soul's longing for God and the peace and harmony of all creation as God first created it. But in the last year of my life, the music was silenced. You see, we had buried in the grounds of our convent a young man who had been excommunicated as a revolutionary and he, we refused to yield up his body. 
but he'd confessed before he died, and his body was entitled to rest in hallowed ground. The Archbishop did not agree with me, and he placed an interdict on us so that we had to say the office and we could not receive communion. I myself, though I was old and ill, had gone out and removed all traces of the grave. For I fear the justice of God more than the justice of men. After eight months and instructed in a vision, I wrote to the Archbishop, reminding him that those who silence the music of God on earth will have no part of the song of the angels in heaven. The interdict was lifted and the music goes on. O viridissima virga Ave Inventoso flabros quiscitationem sanctorum prodisti. Cum venit tempus, quotu floruisti in ramis tuis. Ave, ave tibi. Quia calo solis in te sudavit, sicutodo balsami. Nam in te floruit pulque flos, qui ororem dedit omnibus aromatibus, quia arida erant. Et illa paruherunt omnia in viriditate plena. Unde celi dederunt rorem supergramen, et omnis terra leta facta est, quoniam vira lipsius tumentum protularunt, et quoniam volucre celi, Nido sin ipsa abuerunt. De inde facta hestis cominibus, et gaudium magnum epulantium. Unde, o suavis virgo, in te no deficit olum gaudium. Egom nii contemsit, non gautem lausit altissimo. But the words in the songs that I uttered came from no human source. God moves where he will, and not at the will of any earthly creature. And I am ever in fear and trembling, and I ever doubt 
my own capacities. But I lift my hands to God that he may carry me as a feather without power or strength of its own is carried on the breath of the wind. I died in the year 1179, but I do not think that death has silenced me. As some of you today may hear my <coughs> voice. I was 81 years old when I died. So I had spoken for half my life and I had kept silent for half my life. Perhaps that is the right balance. Taking in, receiving and giving out. In and out. Like breathing like the breath of God. Well, there she is. <coughs> Hildegard. Some people say they would love to have seen... Yeah. <laughs> Some people say that they would have loved to have had a, seen her in conversation with um, Margaret Thatcher. <laughs> would have been some meeting, eh? Some meeting. So what am I going to say about this, this incredible woman? Well, I'm going to do two things with her. One, contextualise her in her own time and then concentrate on why I think she's a woman for our time. And why this woman whose work really remained pretty unknown, um, she lasted for about 10 years after her death and after that it more or less fell into oblivion. Unlike, of course, the male mystics. It's a story not only of women mystics, but also the story of um, women composers. They attain, as she did, <clears throat> a certain measure of um, authority and, and, and uh, renown in their own days but they die about 10 years after their death. Um, and she, why is she rediscovered in the late 20th century? And why, what is that process of contemporization and so on? Because the way she sits in her own period is different from the way that she sits in our period. The views that you see here, the interconnectedness, of everything in these magnificent pictures of this kind here. These big round images. We characterize that. Well, we see the whole of the cost, the whole of the cycle of sorry, held together in these magnificent. Would have been commonplace for her day, not remarkable at all. The medieval world uh, saw everything as interconnected. It was based on the doctrine of humours, public, um, made public in the Middle Ages by Galen, but dating back to Hippocrates, from whom we get the Hippocratic Oath, oath. Um, that <clears throat> everything 
it's connected with everything else. And we have this theory of hot, cold, wet, dry, related to the seasons, and we too are all hot or cold and wet and dry. Um, so there's a personality typology in it and so on. And then when you get to prescribing things like fennel and, or gold or what have you, you have to know what sort of person the person is and whether it's hot or cold or wet or dry because you've prescribed fennel for a dry person in the summer, it will work differently from if you prescribe <coughs> for a cold person in the winter. So it's a very, very subtle form of interrelationship working in the Middle Ages. It was, of course, all swept away by the Enlightenment when the whole thing became very differentiated, really. And we lost this connectedness, largely because in the scheme of things, the Doctor of Humans, there was a substance called black bile, which is difficult to locate. And so it was easy for people to say, um, well, of course, it was all rubbish. But the system that she was working in in the Middle Ages is not unlike Ayurvedic medicine and all of those balancing medicines that were that we're rediscovering in the West today. In a sense, we're rediscovering something from our own past, and that's where she sits. Um, as with everything, she takes what will be the commonplace of her day and reworks it to her own ends. So if we take her medical writings, the two texts on medicine that would have been common in the Middle Ages would have been one lot, which was really theology, which would have the doctrine of humours, but behind that is God, and it's God who holds it all together. So they'd be works of theology stroke medicine, and the others were sort of cook recipe books for medicines, which would have been kept in the infirmaries of the convents and monasteries. Some of you may remember, as I do as a child, the making of a poultice, for example. So it would have included how to do that. Indigestion cakes are one thing that she does. But Hildegard doesn't produce that. She produces one epic piece which says, starts with God creating the world, and then this is why we make digestive cakes in this way. So the whole thing is put together in a great sweep in the medical works and so on. And that's what we find in all of her work. She's the first person to write about women's issues in health in the history of Europe. And she writes in some detail about menstruation and childbirth, not to mention lovemaking for men and women. It's quite clear that from some of her writings and her visions that she would have had experience of dealing with victims of rape, for example, when she draws the rape of the church. It's drawn in such a way that um, it's clear that she would have had experience of the genital bruising that would go with rape amongst the people that she was counselling. And she writes most beautifully about childbirth. In fact, it's very difficult in, when, in her writings of, uh, to, dis, to decide whether she's writing medicine, theology, or poetry. Mm -hmm. So she describes in some detail the growth of the fetus very accurately. And then she describes the infusion of the soul. And so the soul wanders around the fetus like a caterpillar spinning silk. Isn't that lovely? Mm -hmm. Beautiful. Absolutely lovely. You don't find that in medical texts today, do you? <laughs> um, and then when the soul is completely infused and the baby's born. Good theory, isn't it? <laughs> yeah, absolutely lovely. So the soul is wandering around, sort of creeping into fingers and toes and all of that. Lovely, beautiful images and so on and so forth. She's the first uh, woman composer in Europe to have a body of songs that are notated and recorded. 
Not the first one we know that actually composed songs, but the first one to have a body of material left. We have Cassia, who's an orthodox nun, but it's only a little of her stuff. We've got um, a Beguine around, who um, the Flemish Nightingale, but no songs extant at all. We've got Hrosvatha, who we know knew Boethian music theory, but again, we've got the text of her play, but no music. But Hildegard's 77 songs and morality play with music are notated. And the, the, very probably, that means how much, um, uh, in fact, uh, renown she had in her day, because almost certainly they were held in her own memory, in the memory of her convent. So as it said, we were in an orate culture and not a literate culture. Literacy was relatively rare, and literacy was, of course, uh, the province of the priests, male, of course, and, uh, and so on. And most of the culture would be orate. And they would be more orate in music than they would be in words. Because if you wanted your music written down, you had to pay a musical scribe quite a lot of money, both for the, the, the vellum itself and also for the skill of being able to notate. So somebody near the end of her life almost certainly paid for the songs to be written down. But she is the first notated composer in Europe. Um, and she paints, as we can see, her visionary experiences. But again, she's different from her male counterparts, painting in this style. She draws a frame like that, like people often do. And of course, she sticks bits out the side of it. So most people, when they draw a frame, they stay inside of it. And it's not even circles like that, but if you've got the figure of justice here, and you can't get them. You can't get the wing in, one sticks out to the side. No, that's a, a sense. That's a measure of the sort of exuberance. It's a sort of exuberance about what she does, really. So, and some of the images you know, are from medie medieval sources, but she's unusual in that respect, in the way that she treats them. Um, she is an astonishing blend of the radical and the conservative. At the same time as she was working, Bernard of Clairvaux was, of course, reforming the monastic orders and forming what we now call the Cistercians. And although Hildegard was very critical of the church and called the priests ravening wolves, which didn't endear her to them a great really, um, and accused them of raping and plundering the church and their congregations and and being too rich and having two of everything when other people had nothing. Um, she never joined Bernard of Clairvaux. She stayed within the Benedictine order. And indeed, she said about the church the sort of thing Luther was going to say um, in the time of the Reformation. But there was never any indication that she was going to, to, to leave or fracture it and so on. In that respect, she is very much like women who are not natural revolutionaries. There is always a tension, I think, and this is using gender stereotypes, but many feminist theorists would agree with me, for women between the fact that the stability of a society is necessary for the bringing up of children and for the creation of community, and that if you do enter into a revolutionary or rebellious phase, then that is broken in some way. And women are more <coughs> loath to do that than men are. And so she has that tension of wanting to belong but wanting to challenge at the same time. Now, one of the reasons why <clears throat> she didn't survive was because she was criticised for 
her theology, which was regarded by the male authorities as being unclear. So when we read about her in, well, I don't know, even dictionaries of mystics um, from the middle of the 20th century, she's sort of a faraway figure. She has visions, and that's a bit odd. You know, she doesn't write sort of planned hymns, and she also writes in an obscure way. Now, I think that this was a, a deliberate plan on her part, and this form of writing in a slightly obscure way is one that we find in groups of people who are subjugated and at the bottom of a pile quite often. We take the black slaves, we see that same doublespeak in the, um, the, the black spirituals. So yes, we'll gather by the river, and so your overlords think you're going to be baptised, but actually what you're going to do is celebrate your African initiation rites. So you've got a sort of double speak, which means that those who know will understand it one way and the other people will understand it another. So I think some of the unclarity is almost um, deliberate. Now I have no um, justification for doing what I'm doing here, but I'll just give you a small illustration of this. And we're going to do Marjorie Kemp um, next week, who I love, think she's terrific, who does very similar things in front of the Abbot of Leicester when she's actually... Um, nearly burned as a lollard. No. I mean, let's take this interesting picture. Here we have God the Father up, up here, God the Son, and the whole of the cosmos inside of um, God the Father. Beautiful, beautiful picture with what she always has. Um, the winds blowing alongside the air, the water, and the earth, and so on. So all of it there, herself down here, her little signature down the bottom, herself, and so on. So here we have God the Father, here is with a beard, you see. And I could just imagine that, because we'll, we'll come to how she created these huge feminine figures as well as that, and saying to her sisters, and them saying, but he's got a beard. And she said, but look, it's only a little head, isn't it? Yeah, so that way of sort of having a couple of messages in the same picture and so on, I think is an interesting one. And I say, I'm just hypothesizing about that. But it is a way of belonging to have, to put out either an image or a piece of writing which can mean one thing to one group of people and another thing to another group of people. So like Marjorie Kemp, you know, in front of the Abbot of Leicester, well, you know, is, that, is this not orthodox theology that I'm giving you? No. You know, what's, what's so, what's so um, amazing about what I'm saying? So these pictures, these are the visions. She's a quite remarkable theologian. These are not illustrations. These are the theology. They start, she starts with pictures. They're not illustrations. They're firmly rooted in the text. So she has this visionary experience, which is primarily an image. And she then, what we see in Skivias, the first description, is that we have a short description of what the vision is and then a longer 10-page exposition of what it means, and so on. Here we see her receiving the visions, here. This is Hildegard. Um, flames of fire coming onto her head. What is interesting is that we get pictures of other visionaries in the Middle Ages, but in general they're on their own with God. She's not. She's in the context of a community, and she draws herself in this monastic-type community always. 
in one other famous picture, there's um, Richardus of Stala down that side as well. But there's faithful Volmar, the priest who took down, as far as we can see from dictation, the nature of the visions. Um, she has a wax tablet. We don't know what she's doing, whether she was sketching what she saw or, and so on. Volmar's job was quite clear. He was to take down from dictation what she was saying. He was not to change it in any way. Indeed, he got into trouble. He was to put it into decent Latin. She was aware that her Latin was not as good as the, the boys. She would not have had the same systematic teaching and grammar that the boys did. She would have picked up most of her Latin by being dumped in a situation where she was hearing the Latin liturgy and have done it like that. And her Latin, again, if you speak German, it's very like German. And some would say it's not a particularly good Latin, but it's a very vibrant, exciting Latin. Um, so here she is receiving these visions. She has them from the age of three. Or, um, she's ill while she has them. So, in fact, they're not an unqualified blessing for her. Um, and, indeed, Oliver Zacks has talked about them as being a form of migraine. What's often not said about what Oliver Zacks says in a small article in a book remarkably entitled The Man Who Mistook His Wife for a Hat um, is that he says that whether it's migraine or not, um, this does not invalidate what she was given as part of them. That's often, of course, not quoted because the quotation is often given by those people who would dismiss the visionary experience as the realm of, at best, the eccentric and, at worst, the mad. Um, that is really quite important for our time because in our time, the intuitive has got pushed to the margins. And it's much more difficult to be a visionary in the 21st century than it was in the 12th century. And I wonder how many of the Hildegards, Marjorie Kemp's and Julians of Norwich of our day are now locked up in long-stay psychiatric hospitals on mounds of haloperidol. And when you get to Marjorie Kemp, I think she's wonderful because Marjorie Kemp is very able to distinguish the good vision from the bad vision. And she has this wonderful first vision of the Lord Jesus, who is the most beautiful person she's ever seen, in contradistinction from the, the, the demons that she's seen for a while. And in an age that we're in now, which would see both the vision of the Lord Jesus and the vision of the demons as mad, we've lost one of the most crucial things that was part of the visionary experience and part of the role of the spiritual director, the discernment of the spirits. And... And that, in a sense, we see here, an intuitive visionary from childhood who is, of course, told up to the age of 41 to keep silent about the visions and then speaks out at 41. So these visions are not painted by her. They were painted by the nuns under her supervision. Um, sadly, the manuscript, the main manuscript, which was kept in the... Hesse's Landes Bibliothek in Wiesbaden was sent away for safekeeping in the last war and like much of the German um, uh, art treasures was lost in Russia probably. So we now only have, and that's what this is reproductions of, an excellent copy which was made at the early, of the early 20th century which is held by the, the present day nuns at the Abtis and Hildegard in Ibingen. Uh, the colours that she uses in these pictures, one of the remarkable things, so we're told of the original manuscript, but of course we haven't got it anymore, 
is that she used real silver, which is seldom used in um, artistic uh, representations because, of course, it tarnishes. Somehow or other, she managed to create a blend of paint, which enabled her <coughs> to get, because the vision experiences are filled with this radiant light, the radiance. So she's obviously using the silver to try and get at this radiance. And we see these great circles and so on. This one is a particularly powerful one. This is called the Trinity, or sometimes called the man in sapphire blue. I prefer the person in sapphire blue myself. But <laughs> it's a wonderful one for meditation. Here we see God the Father here, and God the Spirit there, and God the, God the Son there. That's what that is. But as a basis of a mandala for meditation, it's absolutely wonderful because, of course, the sun is open to the father through that top part of the head. And a number of people use it for meditation. That part there, of course, the fontanelle, is the last part that closes. And, of course, it's often called the upper chakra. So the imagination of that chakra opening up into the divine love, which is, in a sense, what that is. And we imagine ourselves as that figure in sapphire blue, enclosed by God the Father and God, and God the Holy Spirit there. And many of these are used by people for meditation um, and so on. They have a mandala-esque quality in them. Uh, her theology of the crucifixion is interesting. We get to Julian of Norwich, we'll find a separate, we have a single vision of the crucifixion with just... The, she never has sees the crucifixion as separate. And this is part of her connected knowing from the rest of the cosmos. So here we see the crucifixion deeply connected. Here's Mary on the side here, collecting the blood, which is channeled straight down onto the cup at the altar here. And here are the people praying down the bottom. So for her, um, the crucifixion is part of the whole of the theology of the cosmos. It is not a separate, isolated event. Um, and that's her interconnected theology. She was, of course, found by Matthew Fox, largely. I sometimes feel Matthew Fox turns her into a sort of a um, sound of music type figure leaping around the hills of Germany, singing the hills of alive with the sound of music. And that sometimes denies you know, the talking about about justice, which is really quite hard. She does in one of, one of the visions she's given. She calls the priests ravening wolves, devouring their congregations. Um, so there's a sharpness and an edge to her that is belied by that sort of rather lovely image of being at one with all creation, which she certainly was. But certainly she believed in, in, in the basic blessing of things and original sin, and that's, of course, what Matthew Fox takes up, original sin, original blessing rather than original sin. Her vision, which I haven't got here, sadly, of the fall is the Garden of Eden is underneath and the human being is falling into a sort of pit. But underneath it all is the original blessing of the garden. And <clears throat> in the garden is Eve. Now, Eve is a crucial figure for her because Eve has coming out of her side in that a cloud with lots of little stars in because in Eve is the fruit of the redemption. So the redemption is contained in Eve because she's the one who's going to bear the children that will eventually lead you through to, to Jesus and so on. Eve, of course, she treats, as you see in the song, as would have been standard practice in medieval Marian theology, 
So Jesus is a redeemer of Adam and Eve is a, and, and, and Mary is a redeemer of Eve. So you get and you get that play of Ava and Ave. So Ave is the Ave for Mary is the, is the reversed form of Ava, um, and so on. And Mary was crucial to her. Her most beautiful music was written for Mary. Beautiful music written for Mary. Now remember, she was given away to the convent at the age of eight. And that was undoubtedly a fairly devastating experience. It's unlikely that she would have seen her parents again after that. You can imagine that at eight. And at some point, fairly early on, she would have celebrated a requiem, which is, which is the ceremony of enclosure. She does rail against the, the practice of Charles, child obliture later in her life, saying that children should be allowed to choose and should not be given to the convent in that way, which is a measure to which I think that she thought it wasn't a terribly good idea what was done to her. And in one of the visionary experiences, she's wandering around a desert and eventually finds someone who says she loves her and encloses her. And Mary Gray, in her writing about Hildegard, sees Mary as replacing the mother that she never had, the mother who gave her away. So Mary becomes the divine mother. Mary, in her theology, is in the long line of people who have incarnated Jesus. So there's the patriarchs and the prophets, and then there's Mary, and then there's Jesus, uh, and then we can incarnate um, uh, Christ through the light of contemplation. So she is a, a, a theologian of the mutual indwelling theology that we're going to get from Meister Eckhart and so on. And it comes through this line of wisdom, of the indwelling wisdom. And out of that wisdom theology, wisdom being feminine, of course, in the Hebrew scriptures, um, she develops a number of feminine figures. She develops a clay, uh, she develops synagogue, <coughs> who's a Jewish woman, and in her pockets she has all the patriarchs and prophets, so she's looking after them, because they are incarnating wisdom. And then synagogue gives way to ecclesia, who's the church, and she has bishops and priests and virgins all stuck in her pockets. So, um, and um, then we have, in fact, she's a real virtue theologian. So we have this wisdom theology. Anybody who's looked at the wisdom scriptures will know that wisdom is a curious figure. On the one hand, she's sort of hidden behind God in this dance and so on and so forth. On the other hand, she's out in the marketplace protesting publicly about this, that and the other. So she's got lots and lots of different facets in her. And um, so she does, in the end, break that down into a number of separate virtues. So in the middle book, we have a theology of virtue, a very good theology of virtue. And the middle book is often not quoted as much the Book of Life's Merits as, as much as Scevias, Knowing the Ways, and the final book. And in that theology of virtue, what she sets out is the relationship, and everything is in relationship for Hildegard, the relationship between virtue and vice. So virtue and vice are not unrelated. The vice is a twisted form of the virtue. So the answer to vice is to untwist it into its virtuous form. So envy is but a twisted form of love. So you have the good and the evil flying alongside one another, and what you need to do is to find the flow and, 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 and untwist that. It's a very interesting, she's a very interesting virtue theologian. And her most clear expression, this warms my heart as a musician, of her theology of virtues is to be found in her opera, the morality play, um, with music. 
How am I doing for time? Because I can't remember when I was supposed to stop. Yes, stop. Lunchtime. It's 7.30. I've already gone over, haven't I? Well, I'll just finish this bit then. Um, So in the morality play, you've got the virtues who are all trying to help the soul through life and the devil who's not trying to help very much and trying to get the soul to take off the robe of faith and so on. Um, The devil is the only person who speaks and the only man in the cast, and he speaks because he's not connected with God and everybody else sings and and so on. And eventually, of course, she goes off with the devil, but eventually they chain the devil up and, and she becomes a good faith-seeking, and virginity was very important to her virgin. Um, uh, Hildegard's virginity was very significant for her. But towards the end of her life, she develops a theology where three virtues become paramount. They become almost a female trinity, circling always at the heart of God, peace, humility, and love. And this is Caritas, love. And here she is, of course, with the greening power. The greening power, viriditas, very important for Hildegard. It's the greening power that runs through the plants, it runs through us as our immune system, and so on. So it connects us all together. Green was very important. She had a high theology of gems and so on. So one of the high gems was the emerald. You put it in your mouth and you hold it in your mouth and you get some of the greening power in you. So she used crystals and so on um, as part of her theology. The music you've already heard, a single line chants, but again... They don't behave like plain chant. Um, They leap and they dance in a way that that plain chant doesn't. They also have a dramatic quality that plain chant doesn't. Some of you will know the Gothic voices recording A Feather on the Breath of God. I think that is very peaceful and lovely, but I think she was more exuberant than that. And I would commend to you the Sequencia recordings, the Canticles of Ecstasy and the Voice of the Blood. Um, And... That's the way I sing them, with much more passion and, and, and sort of drama because of the way it's done in the play. And her classic little opening trick is da 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 da. Now we don't hear that in your average plain song chant, which usually wanders around leaping not much more than a fourth and not doing that very often, um, and so on. So again, and of course her, her, some of her pieces change modes in the middle, now in the Middle Ages that was not unheard of, or it was not heard of at all. So she prefigures later developments in music and so on. She's an embodied theologian, the body, as you can see, is part of it, and so on. I can't talk much more about it. I said I would say why she's important for our age, and I'll finish with that. Um, I've drawn here a little thing that I will leave out. Um, In any age, Certain value systems become dominant and certain value systems become subjugated. So our age is a very individualistic age. It values the public, it values the product, it values the disembodied, the rational, the challenging, the united and the excited. So these values become subjugated. The value of the community, the private process, nobody's valuable uh, unless they can produce products in our society the embodied, the intuitive, nurture, the diverse, and the relaxing. And if these subjugated values lose touch with those dominant values, they often become perverted, both bits become perverted. So she asks us to establish a flow and reminds us of those lost ways of knowing 
that our society is in danger. And I think that's why, as that task, as that property of subjugating those value systems became more prominent towards the end of the 20th century, Hildegard came as a historical figure who um, reminded us of the subjugated ways of knowing, which we so desperately needed to hear. And she reminds us that the answer does not lie in either of the ends, but in a flow between them. And I'm going to end by singing her antiphon to wisdom, which has the figure of wisdom flying. Some people say it's this one. I'm never quite sure whether it is or not. We have a three-winged figure here anyway. Um, and she has three wings. One flies to heaven, one flies to the earth, and the third one flies everywhere. A wonderful incarnational. That our, we are heavenly beings with one foot in heaven and we can see the divine image of God. And we have one foot in earth and we're deeply earthy. We're vulnerable, we cry, we hurt, we bleed. But actually, the human condition, and that's why Christianity is such a magnificent faith, is incarnational. And finding the third wing which brings together both the heavenly and the earthly. I'm going to sing it in English. Sophia, we 